You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now, it's taken us a long time, but tonight we come to the end of our series on the first letter of Peter, and uh, the reading you'll find if you're using the Church Bible on page 1221. But what I want to do for our reading is to read the first few verses of the letter, which are on 1217, and then the last couple of verses on page 1221. This letter uh, has taken us an undue amount of time for a variety of reasons, but you will remember when we began it, we noticed that Peter was writing to uh, various uh, little churches in what we nowadays call Turkey. Um, It's actually quite something to think that it's just possible there were as many native uh, Turkish evangelicals when Peter was writing as there were in Turkey 50 years ago. Um, By God's grace, many have come to faith since then. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Asia being a Roman province in those days, not what we nowadays call Asia. Elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then his final greetings on page 1221. Uh, Incidentally, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, not the New International Version. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. In the dim and distant days when I was a university student, uh, the day I left home, my mother, who was a woman of some force, uh, told me I had to write home once a week. Uh, And as a matter of fact, I wrote to my mother whenever we were apart, once a week, until she died. She, on her part, wrote twice a week. And how many of you remember letters? In the old days, you actually had to finish letters, different from emails which you stop. Old-fashioned letters, you you needed to draw to a conclusion, and uh, often my mother's letters at the end depended on how much time was left before the mail was being collected. I was usually full of bits and pieces. And so you read the substance carefully, and you kind of skated over the bits and pieces towards the end. And unless you're very different from me, we tend to do exactly the same thing when we read the letters in the New Testament. 
we see that it's finishing, and then we think, what's the next letter that we can get on to? And yet, if you pause at the end of these letters, uh, some of the most intriguing and fascinating little details uh, seem to appear, like my mother's letters, in these God-inspired letters of the New Testament. You know, every so often there is an expression or a phrase or a word comes into vogue, and it seems everybody is using it. The politicians are using it, the, the journalists are using it, the people on the street are using it. And you get to the point where you think, at least I do, if I hear one more person use that expression, I'll start screaming. One of my near screaming expressions these days is the narrative. Have you noticed how often it's used? The politicians will use it. Uh, the, the statistics are bad. That's just a snapshot. You need to know the narrative. Or the more polite Oxbridge graduate will tell you it's so important for you to understand the narrative of the situation. What's fascinating, at least to me, is that language has only appeared as commonly used since people stopped believing there was a narrative. You notice that we live in the, in the wake of so-called postmodernism where there is no big narrative. There's no creation and there's no destination. And the result of that, it's, it's like what happens when we play fast and loose with God's Ten Commandments. We have to start making a thousand more commandments. And when you don't have the big narrative, what happens? Everybody's got to start making up their own narrative. So, this is the first time in the series and the last time in this series when I will ask the question, what's the narrative? Because actually, if, you, if you've got the mental capacity to look back over a year and reflect on what Peter has been teaching here, the narrative, as it were, has by and large been seen from the side of the first recipients of the letter. What is, we've sat with them, what is Peter teaching us? And occasionally we've moved over to Peter's side because we understand, like all biblical writers, what he writes, he writes in a sense out of the, the womb and matrix of his own experience of God's grace. And so, each writer in the Bible uh, comes in a very human way with a with a gift from God that has been shaped into their lives by God's providences. But here, right at the end, very interestingly, uh, it's almost as though if Peter were a 21st century person, at the end of this letter, he might say, now, I've just been waiting for you to ask the question, what's the narrative here? And he, he takes us into the situation just before the letter was being written. He tells us about himself and about those who were with him and what his desires are, both for them and for the people who are receiving it, and presumably also for all who will read it. And so, I want us to, to just take a few minutes this evening to look into the narrative from Peter's point of view, 
And if we do that, the first thing that you notice is that he tells us something about the context in which he was writing. And he especially mentions his companions who obviously, together with him, are sending greetings. He says he's writing this by Sylvanus. He mentions the fact that Mark sends greetings, and he refers to this mysterious figure, she who is in Babylon. Now, look at the two people who are named first of all. He says, I'm, I'm writing this letter briefly by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him. Now, many of you will know Sylvanus is the Latin version of the Greek name Silas. And a little like the Apostle Paul himself, um, people who lived in, in a bicultural world, in a bilingual wor world, often went by two names related to one another. Saul, his Hebrew name was in the Gentile word, world, Paul, a Roman name, a Latin name. And Sylvanus here, I think almost certainly, is the same man as the man who is called Silas elsewhere in the New Testament. And he is obviously here with Paul. And he, he is a particularly interesting character. He was a leading figure in the church in Jerusalem. He was the person, do you remember in the Acts of the Apostles where there was a kind of, a kind of bust up between Paul and his dear, dear friend Barnabas as to whether on the second missionary journey they should take John Mark with them? John Mark, who was a, a nephew of Barnabas's, had gone with them on the first missionary journey, and then gone all that far before John Mark pulled up his tent pegs and went home. We don't know why, but obviously it, it left some kind of aroma around his life. And when Paul was about to set off on his second missionary journey, you know the one that's in, I can't remember what color is it in the maps at the back of your Bible, uh, he said to Barnabas, we're not taking Mark this time. And Barnabas said, no, we're taking Mark this time. And Paul said, well, I'm not taking Mark this time. And so Barnabas said, well, I'll take Mark. And there was this, there was this paroxysm, this, this violent split between these two brothers who had seen so much together. And Paul did an interesting thing. He had lost both Barnabas, a senior leader in the church, and a great encouragement to him, and he had also lost this younger man, John Mark. And so, he replaced John Mark, the younger man, with Timothy, and he replaced Barnabas with Silas. Now, here's an interesting thing. The Apostle Paul not only had that difficulty with Barnabas. Uh, he had a difficulty with Simon Peter. Simon Peter had come to the church in Antioch, and when some people had come down from Jerusalem who had a certain view of 
uh, how you kept the Old Testament kosher food laws. And Paul had taught, the church had really taught that Gentiles were free to eat anything they wanted. Actually, Jewish converts were free to eat anything they wanted. And uh, Simon Peter moved to the table where they, they weren't having bacon and eggs for breakfast. And Barnabas moved to that table as well. So, this is fascinating. Here we've got with Simon Peter, who had been confronted by the Apostle Paul, we've got the man who replaced Barnabas, and we've got the man who had deserted on the first missionary journey. And uh, the people who received this letter, the people who were there in the room when this letter was being written, their minds must have been exploding with thoughts. I see, actually, you know how it's one thing for things to be true, but when you put them down in black and white, very interesting, isn't it? But actually, now he says, I'm writing by Silas Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Now, what does he mean by that? Bear with me, this will actually go somewhere eventually. What does he mean when he says, I'm writing briefly to you, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother. Well, it could mean that Sylvanus is the guy with the, you know, the equivalent of the, the Parker ballpoint pen. That he's writing it. You know, Sylvanus wasn't your kind of common or garden secretary type. He was one of the leading figures in the church. And so, Many New Testament scholars and commentators over the years noticing, now we're getting into deep water here, noticing that the Greek of First Peter and the rhetoric of First Peter is fairly classy, have been tempted to say that Simon Peter couldn't have written this. I mean, he's a guy from the Galilean backwoods, a fisherman, a businessman. He, he wouldn't have had this rhetorical style. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have had this kind of Greek. And so, they said, well, maybe what, maybe what he's saying here is that um, I've said to Sylvanus, this is what I want to say. Would you kind of, you know, I mean, maybe you've even done that for somebody. Would you just help me with my job application? And you've not, you've not felt you've been cheating? One of the problems with that view, and, and now we're really getting into deep water, and I'm kind of dependent here on a student I once had at seminary, went on to be a fairly distinguished New Testament professor, who did a lot of work on the language of First Peter and demonstrated, I think, with some solid arguments, that First Peter is written in Greek by somebody whose native language was probably different. Now, these scholars, they do that by statistics, but, you know, we've a spread of accents. We've, we've um, I mean, we may have people in the church whose native language is Gallic. We've some people in the church whose native language is North American. We've people in the church whose native language is, is Greek. 
uh, who's, who may have an Asian native language. One of the things you notice about people who are able to communicate really well in a foreign language that isn't their native language is that from time to time, they'll, they'll, just, they'll use the preposition that you use in their native language in English. And for some reason or another, we don't use that preposition. If you hear somebody say it's different to rather than different from, they're likely to be North Americans. And we speak the same language. And my student demonstrated essentially that this isn't a letter written by somebody for whom writing in Greek would have been as natural and native as it would be for Silas. So, what does Peter mean? Here's what I think he means. Um, now, you need to go back to the, the age of letter writing. You don't, you don't do this with emails, although you can do it with emails. Some of you remember the day when you would get a letter that was delivered by hand, and you needed to be kind of slightly upper class echelon to do this kind of thing. Um, David Robertson is going, let's say he's going to Edinburgh. I know he's going to see somebody. I need to write to that person. And I, I say to David, David, would you give him this letter? And then, because of my upper class breeding and all the rest of it, I write by courtesy of David Robertson. Now, that, some of you have no idea what that's about, but that's really saying, I'm sending you this by David Robertson. And I think that's actually what Peter means here. I've written this, and it's coming to you by Sylvanus, courtesy of Sylvanus. In other words, Sylvanus is not so much the co-author of First Peter as he is. Now, uh, grab hold of what I'm about to say. As he is the deliverer of First Peter and its first expositor. You remember what happened in the synagogue? Remember when Jesus is invited to read a passage? It doesn't just mean read the passage, does it? He reads the passage and then he expounds the passage. When Paul goes into the synagogue and they invite him to give us a reading, he, he doesn't just read the passage, he expounds the passage. And I think this is what Paul is saying. I think this is the reason why he describes Sylvanus as a faithful brother. If any of you were brought up in the Brethren or in non-Presbyterian churches, you know what a faithful brother is. It, it, it's somebody who faithfully handles the Word of God. David Robertson is a faithful brother. We don't just mean he's, a, he's Joe Christian and he's, he's a good egg. We mean he handles the Word of God well. And we can therefore rely on the faithfulness of the exposition of Scripture. And that, I think, is what he's saying about uh, this man, Sylvanus. That when he comes to you, he's not only bringing this letter and moving around these various churches, delivering it or a copy of it to the different churches, but, uh, well, you know, 
I mean, if he were to come here and just out of the blue give us First Peter, wouldn't you think some of us would say, well, what, what did Peter mean about this business about baptism saving us? What is this business about spirits in prison? Oh, yes, I knew that one would come up, says Silvanus, and he expounds the Scriptures to them. And if he's going to do that, he really needs to be a faithful brother. You remember the instructions and exhortations that Paul gives to Timothy? In fact, he tells Timothy to do essentially exactly the same thing. He says to Timothy, now, Timothy, listen to this. You are to devote yourself to the public reading of the Scriptures and to exhortation and to teaching, and you mustn't neglect the gift that you have. You have to devote yourself to these things so that, here's a verse to haunt preachers, so that all may see your progress. And so, this is a beautiful thing that he's saying, isn't it, about Silas? I mean, what a man to have beside you. It's not surprising that after he had lost Barnabas, Paul looked for Silas. And then there's this other young man, John Mark, you know, one of the, one of the early failures. I mean, we, we don't know why he left. Was he homesick? Was the, was the going pretty tough for him? You know, we sign up to the Christian life. You don't kind of expect people to break out and batter you and bruise you. And uh, whatever it was, it was a burden to Paul. He, f- he felt the young man wasn't ready for the rough and tumble that would be involved in the second missionary journey. And as it happens, there was a tremendous amount of rough and tumble in the second missionary journey. It's very interesting. Actually, when you read the Acts of the Apostles, you're kind of left wondering, what did Luke really think about this? But isn't it interesting that, that, that here he is, back in service, and here he is. This, is. this really kind of boggles my mind because it is so beautiful. Here he is, and, and, and the other companion of Peter is the fellow who replaced his uncle Barnabas. Don't you think there's something remarkable about this? Here are these two men who were connected to Paul, and now you throw Peter into the mix, and like, you know, every one of them was involved in a, in, in a situation where there was a sharp falling out, and yet Silas is a faithful brother, and this young man, Mark, Peter, well, Peter would understand what it meant to fail so badly. Peter, who, who shows such love and respect for Paul in his second letter, our beloved brother, Paul, he, he has these bonds. You know, what, the, you know, all this is very interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's just plain, it's just plain interesting. If, you, if this doesn't interest you, you must be brain dead. It's absolutely fascinating. I suppose teeth are fascinating as well to dentists, you might be thinking. Um, but, but what's, what's the cash value? It's that in one way or another, 
Paul, who isn't mentioned here, Peter, who is, Barnabas, Silas, John Mark, had all been involved in a situation of the sharpest and most painful alienation. And what is kind of breathtaking just about the fact that Peter can write this is the mountain of affection that flows in this fellowship of God's children, that they have been alienated from one another. And it happens, doesn't it? It happens in the church. God's people can be alienated from one another and feel that they've not been treated properly. God is able to to reconcile us, to bring us back together. I think, incidentally, that's one of the things the Lord's Supper should do for us. If the Lord's Supper conveys to us that we have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ and He embraces us, it should produce in us a desire to be reconciled to others from whom we may have been alienated in the fellowship or beyond the fellowship and to embrace them. And these kind of throwaway comments at the end of this letter actually have a kernel of extraordinary hope for us when, when that's the case. So, this is part of the narrative, the context in which he was writing the letter. And the elect lady, well, that's the church, isn't it? I mean, some people think it was Peter's wife. What was she doing in Babylon? You know, Babylon was in decline at this stage. You know, Mrs. Peter was not out there on her spring vacation. Remember how John refers to the church as the elect lady. But why in Babylon? Probably because Peter's in Rome. And Rome is the center of the universe for these people, the center of the Roman Empire. But just as he had written to them, you know, in the outskirts of the empire and said, you're elect exiles, not meaning that you were exiled from Rome, but meaning that you were an alien resident here in this world because you belonged to heaven. That's where your true citizenship was. You remember he said, what you will suffer is suffered by your brothers throughout the world. And he's saying, we're writing to you from Babylon, the epicenter. I mean, Babylon is almost biblical code language for the exile, isn't it? By the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I mean, even if you don't know the Old Testament, you maybe remember Boney M. (laughs) You know, I'll not bother you with singing it. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That was one of the great texts these people would have known. Babylon, exile, foreign land. How can we sing the Lord's song? And that's what he's been doing in his letter, isn't it? He's been teaching these believers to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. They're singing it there out in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia, and these are singing it in the the epicenter of the Roman empire. And these throwaway remarks, as I say, are a wonderful illustration of the grace of God in the gospel and what it does day by day in the lives of Christians. 
Now, the second thing here to notice, not only does Peter speak about the context in which he's writing the letter, but he also provides a summary of the message of the letter. And you'll notice what it is. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring, exhorting and bearing witness to the truth that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, in First Peter, the true grace of God is essentially the way of salvation. It's what he described in chapter 1 when he actually spoke about the grace of God, that the grace of God brings us in regeneration into a new life. It keeps us by God's power, and it brings us into the glory of God, the salvation that is given to us. And Peter is now looking on the message of his letter, and he's saying this, what you've got in this letter is exhortation and declaration, declaration and exhortation. And we've been going through the letter, we've noticed this, that the way in which Peter thinks is to say, this is what God has done for us in Christ, so this is the way we live. And you can go home and read through the letter before you put your head on the pillow tonight, and you will see that's the way he thinks. Sometimes he'll give the exhortation, and then he'll ground the exhortation in what God has done for us in Christ. Sometimes he'll explain to us what God has done for us in Christ, and then draw the conclusion about what the Holy Spirit wants us to do in response to what God has done for us in Christ. But this is an unbreakable bond in Peter's thinking. There is declaration of the truth of the gospel and exhortation to us to respond to it. Or as we often say nowadays, the gospel comes to us in an indicative form, what God does for us in Christ, and that gives rise to an imperative form. Therefore, this is how you are to respond. And that link is unbreakable. And Peter gives us an immediate illustration of it. This is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, I'm not much given to being critical of preaching, at least outwardly and in public. And some of us, the only preaching we, by and large, ever hear is in this room, isn't it? You know, we we don't gather around churches. We have, we have preachers in the church. We, we listen to them. Will preaches, David preaches, Harry preaches, John preaches, Hugh preaches, I preach. It's not everybody preaches, but there's a lot of preachers in this church. There's a lot of unity in the preaching in the church. But here's something, I think especially maybe if you're a student, and so you hear all kinds of things, maybe in the Christian Union or elsewhere, and you hear all kinds of cutting-edge things. One of the things you need to look out for is that these two things are always held together. This is the true grace of God, therefore stand firm in it. Because there is a kind of 
atmosphere around these days in which the greatest sin in the world for a Christian and the, the worst thing that could be said about you would be that you were a legalist. And so, there is a kind of massive influx of teaching and preaching on grace that only teaches and preaches half the gospel. It says, this is the true grace, and it doesn't say, therefore stand firm in it. And it misses this absolutely vital point that the richer the proclamation of grace is, inevitably the more rigorous the imperatives for obedience will be. Now, this is something I am afraid, I'm almost ashamed to say many people don't get this. They seem to think that if you speak much of grace, then you must be very quiet about commands. But actually, the gospel teaches us the very reverse. The gospel teaches us if you're very quiet about commands, it's because you don't know very much about grace. And Peter is a huge illustration of that, isn't it? This is the true grace of God, and then he's the sergeant major. Stand firm in it. How can he be so rigorous in saying, stand firm in it? Well, the answer is simple, because he's been preaching the true grace of God, and he understands the connection. Let me give you an illustration. I remember a number of years ago hearing a young minister. He was a Reformed minister. He was, he was into preaching grace. He was preaching on a passage that was full of imperatives. The sermon was a word of warning lest we become legalists. It was entirely taken up with telling us about grace, so much so it completely ignored what was in the passage. Is there something wrong with exalting grace? No, there's nothing wrong with exalting grace. I mean, this church is passionate. This, I was almost calling it a pulpit. That pulpit was passionate about preaching grace. This lectern is passionate about the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, the fullness and riches of the gospel. But you see, if we are not sufficiently immersed in grace to be able to take the most vigorous imperatives possible in this world, our problem is that we haven't understood grace. Now, one text silences all opposition to that proposition. Actually, Peter's statement here silences it. But listen to this from Paul's letter to his dear son, Titus. Do you know these words? He says, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to renounce ungodly lusts. Lesson, if the preaching of the gospel doesn't teach you to renounce ungodly lusts, there is some question about the nature of the gospel that you've been hearing. And this is, this is not an incidental thing. Um, I pass on from it. 
Um, but it's not incidental that Peter's language here, stand firm in this, is directly related linguistically to the language he'd used earlier on in connection with the devil. Stand against the devil by standing firm in the grace of God that teaches you to renounce ungodly lusts and brings about a life of of righteousness. You see, if, if somebody says, as people do say, oh, that's legalism, then you invite them to get one of these, you know, the old CIA black markers and say, well, let's go through the New Testament and we'll, we'll, we'll block out every time the apostles give us such an exhortation to obedience, to holiness, to radical discipleship. And then we'll believe what's left in the New Testament. So this is, this, is, um, this is absolutely central. Yes, of course, legalism is, 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 is uh, to be feared and annihilated, but it's not annihilated by cutting the essential connectedness there is between the indicative of grace and the imperative of obedience. And this is surely one of the ways in which today we need to learn to test the prophets, because it's all around us in all kinds of ways, not just the health, wealth, and happiness gospel, but in all kinds of subtle ways. The fact that somebody says grace does not mean that they understand how grace works. But Peter understands how grace works. He needed to understand how grace worked. And so, again, these words in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What a, what a great lesson Peter is teaching them here. Well, that brings us now, we must move on to the third thing. So, he talks about this context and those who are with him. He gives us this summary of his message and he illustrates by this wonderful statement, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And then just notice the closing words in the letter, because he tells them, doesn't he, what he wants them to do. He says, we're sending greetings, and then verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Hey, now that's just as much a command as stand firm in the gospel isn't it? What are we going to do with this? Should I stop now and say, I mean, this is, you know, it takes a lifetime to stand firm in the gospel. It only takes a second to greet one another with a kiss of love. Let me read you some words. There won't be many of you who will guess the source. It betrays an unnecessary reserve, if not loss of the ardor of the church's first love, 
when the holy kiss is conspicuous by its absence in the Western church. Now, for those of you who recognize his name, those are the words of the late Professor John Murray, brought up as a free Presbyterian, incidentally, ended life as an Orthodox Presbyterian minister. If Will had been younger, Will would have studied under him. Um, one of the legendary theologians of the 20th century Reformed churches. Interesting, isn't it? But what do we make of this? Well, first of all, we need to know as far as we can tell, the New Testament doesn't actually, if you said, well, how do you do this? You know, how do you do this? The New Testament doesn't tell us. But we know how the post-apostolic church did it. And uh, it did it, women with women and men with men. So, here's what I conclude. You know, those of you my generation, remember J.B. Phillips, that dear man? Remember him? Your God is too small, uh, translation of the New Testament. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to some of you. Um, wonderful man. Uh, I think probably depressed by fame and riches that came to him. Just a humble vicar in the Church of England translating the New Testament. Do you know what he does with this? Love it. Hearty handshake all round. <laughs> He's got five different versions of it because this is said five different times in the New Testament. End of Romans, end of 1 Corinthians, end of 2 Corinthians, end of 1 Thessalonians, end of 1 Peter. And he translates it in five different ways, but it's basically the same. Hearty handshake all round. I mean, that's an English gentleman speaking, isn't it? <laughs> Dear friend of mine, one of my best friends in all the world was a student under Professor Murray, and one day Professor Murray took him for a walk around campus and linked arms with him and turned him and said, aye, you're a bonny laddie, but you daren't do that today. You know, so greeting one another with a holy kiss, what do we conclude? I think what we conclude is this, that we truly from the heart welcome one another in a way that is sensitive to gender and sexuality and sensitive to culture. Because this was the family greeting of this culture. And so, I think the takeaway, as they say, I'll be screaming if I hear someone speak about the takeaway again myself, the takeaway from this is, how do we do this in our culture? And that's going to change from culture to culture, isn't it? It's going to change even in a lifetime. I mean, there, there, are, there are expressions of that that I think would have been perfectly acceptable when I was a teenager, that you almost daren't do nowadays, and it's tragic that you daren't do it, but we need to be sensitive to the culture in which we live, and we also, and hey, this goes back to Genesis. This isn't, this isn't any buffoon's idea. Sensitive to the fact that we've actually been made different, male and female. I mean, excuse me putting it this way, you just need to look to see that we've been made different. And we are different. And so we find sensitive ways of doing this that really expresses affection and love for one another. It's what David was speaking about this morning. Don't you love coming here? And you might not 
love being kept here all this time. But we love coming here. And Peter Sumo let it out. You know, find ways of letting people know. I mean, I've often said to friends, you know, Scotsmen don't waste energy smiling because they're having too good a time to waste any energy by smiling. You know, you need to find something a bit more sensitive to other people than that. So that it shows there's a welcome sign in our lives. And since this is a command, hey, Peter doesn't assume everybody in those churches is is going to do this instinctively. You may have to break down a little psychological barrier in yourself. You know, I mean, I, I have a friend who whose smile is frozen on his face. You know, there are people like that, something to do with the way their bones are here. But some of us aren't like that. A frown is frozen in our faces. Well, this is a command. You don't say, when God tells you to do something, you don't say, I'm not wired that way. You say, Lord, help me to do it. Help me to find ways of doing it to embrace one another in love. And it's in this context. I mean, there's family written all over this. It's in this context that shalom is so relevant. Shalom, peace to all of you who are in Christ. I mean, there's just something about a a really great family, isn't there? You can be yourself. You can you know, you've come home. You know, some of you go on cruises and to swanky hotels, and then you, you come back to the old rug and the old beaten-down chair, and, and you say, that was, that was okay, but I'm just so glad to be home because I can be who I really am here. That's shalom. And when a church fellowship is like that, you know, strangers come in, and they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea no idea what the guy's talking about. All these hymns with all their strange references to things. But they leave and something lingers with them. It's what Peter calls peace. There was things seemed there to be what things kind of ought to be. I don't know how it is. I don't know where it came from. And that, as he had said in chapter 3, is what makes people begin to ask, what's the explanation for this? And he gives it in the last words of the letter. The explanation for it is that we are in Christ. I, uh, I don't like farewells, um, don't much like ending series, but often, you know, I wonder if you felt this when, when I've ended a series of studies myself or someone else doing it. You know, do you know what I wanted to do? Um, occasionally you, you want to do this when you, you read a book and then you don't bother doing it. I want to sit down and write a letter to the human author, Peter. I'd kind of love to do this. You know, if David gets, to, whoever's going to heaven, first of all, we can send it by courtesy of you. And we say, dear Peter, 
we're actually in a church that's been named after you. I don't know how that happened. None of us knows how that happened. Maybe something to do with the street name because we, we don't believe in special saints in the free church. And we're actually called St. Peter's. And you never called yourself St. Peter in any way that was different from anybody else. But oh dear Peter, thank you for being obedient to the Lord. And thank you especially that when he took you on that walk that was so sore for you and he, he asked you those probing questions about whether you really loved him and the fire reminded you of the way in which you'd, you'd denied him three times. Thank you so much that you've done in this letter what he told you to do. You've taken care of the sheep and you've fed the lamb. So, thank God for First Peter. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way in which you took this man. Thank you that the Lord Jesus chose somebody who was so fragile and, and was so patient with him and at times so rigorous with him. Thank you for the way in which the Lord Jesus restored him especially for the way in which the Lord Jesus prayed for him. Simon, Satan has desired to have you all to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. And when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. We thank you for the strengthening of our lives through this little letter and for the marvels of this gospel. And we pray that we may sink ourselves into the grace of Jesus Christ and be so saturated with it that the most rigorous commands and demands upon our lives will become to us the very things we want to do for the glory of our Savior. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.